One of the most popular songs on the radio today is by a country singer by the name of Hardy. The name of the song is, get ready, give heaven some help. I want to read the words to that song. Don't walk out. Hang with me. I'm going somewhere here. Can't believe that you got me in a suit and tie. I had to take a pulse so I wouldn't cry. You got a line out the church door saying goodbye. Yeah, I believe them when they say you're in a better place. You had a wild side, but you had amazing grace. I know you're way off in them clouds, but if you could still hear me right now, I hope you hit those gold streets on two wheels. I hope your mansion in the sky's got a 10-acre field with some mud and some hubs you can lock in. Make some thunder, make them wonder how you got in. Hide your beer, hide your clear. That's slang for crystal meth from the man upstairs. Crank it loud, hold it down till I get there. And when I do, I hope you got some new stories to tell. Till then, give heaven some help. Now I'm gonna skip the second verse, but I want you to hone in on this third verse with me. I was there when you raised your hand. Heads bowed, singing, just as I am. Walking that aisle, praying that prayer. Man, it ain't right, but you gotta be there. Then the chorus, and then it repeats one more time. I was there when you raised your hand. Heads bowed, singing, just as I am. Man, it ain't right, man, it ain't fair. I'll see you again. But till then, give heaven some hell. The reason I read that song to you is not just because that song is so popular today. That song's how most of the world believes. That song is how a lot of people in church believe. That's a theology of our world today. It doesn't matter how I live. I raised my hand. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I'm in. Did you know that Jesus himself talked as much about this subject as any subject in the Bible? At least six of the parables Jesus dealt with deal with this subject. And in one of those parables, Jesus said this. If you understand this parable, you understand all the parables. Insinuating if you don't understand that parable, you won't understand any of the parables. They show that whenever the gospel is preached or given out, people will respond to the gospel. And there will be true and there will be false conversions. Many. Did you know Jesus himself said this? Many will think they're on their way to heaven. Many, he said, only to find out too late. They were not. Wow, that, that's a frightening word that Jesus uses. He said many will be self-deceived. So this morning, our, st- our story deals with the one question we all need the answer to. And, and many of us don't like the answer that Jesus gave, so we sort of want to twist it and change it. If you have your Bibles, I wish I had this screen. I don't be finding Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Jesus in this story is having a dialogue with a rich young ruler. Probably the ruler of a synagogue, maybe one of the Sanhedrin. What the Sanhedrin were was a group of 71 members that made up the ruling body or court in Jerusalem, headed up by the high priest. To put it in today's vernacular, it'd be like the Supreme Court of our day. This guy was a big shot. This man had it all. And in our story, it says in verse 17, and when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and knelt to him and asked him, 
Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? <clears throat> Immediately in this dialogue, this man answered, asked the one question that every one of you, 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 every one of us needs the You don't need the answer to any other question in life, but you do need the answer to this. This man asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I know what you're thinking. I know, I know what's going through a lot of these minds. You've got to be kidding. You got one shot up there preaching, and you're preaching on that. This is a Bible teaching, Bible preaching church. We've known that since first grade. Oh, here we go again. Hope I can make it through this. But listen, folks, something's wrong. So many today who once attended church made a profession of faith, walked in out, got baptized, were even very involved for such a while have walked away and have nothing to do with God today. Something's wrong. Ray Comfort, an evangelist who some of you have seen probably on TV, over 40 years has been involved in evangelism all over the world. <clears throat> and he said this after doing a great study. He said 84 to 96% of people who've been saved in an evangelistic rally or through church evangelism leave the faith and never come back. Now, I'm not that into statistics, but that's amazing. That's an unbelievable fa fact. So what's going on? Look back at our text in Mark chapter 10. The Bible says, the, now picture Jesus. Jesus is at the head of his, the peak of his time here on earth. The crowds were in the thousands and thousands. He'd been healing. He'd been teaching like nobody ever heard. He'd been preaching like nobody heard. He'd even been feeding them for free. They were coming by the thousands. And all of a sudden, a man pulls up. He's got the Z06 Corvette. The door's open like this. He steps out. He's got the Armani suit. He's got the Oakley shades on, the Gucci shoes. And he does something really weird. He runs ahead of the crowd. And he kneels before Jesus. That's being humble, folks. This man was very humble. And this man earnestly, with everything in him, wants to know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you grew up in an evangelistic church like I did, you would have called that cherry picking, man. Are you kidding? This is awesome. And you would have answered that man something like this. Sir, you need only admit that you're a sinner and pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. At that point, you would have led that young man in a prayer, <clears throat> what we call the sinner's prayer. And when you were, you might have asked him to pray it out loud, or you might have let him pray to himself. When he got done, you might have said something like this, sir, if you believe that with all your heart, you are saved. And then you would give him some verses of assurance, something like John 10, 28, 29. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then you might tell him, sir, open the flyleaf of your Bible. And you write this date. This is the day you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart. And if you ever doubt, you go back to that flyleaf. You remember this day, and you'll be saved forever. But that's not what Jesus did. Look at our passage. Excuse me, man, I started losing my voice in the first service. I apologize. Hang with me. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and knelt before him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one that is God. Insinuating, 
Am I God? Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother, Matthew adds, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And this young man answers, and he said unto him, Master, all these I've kept from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Why did Luke write that? Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Of course. Doesn't Jesus love everybody? I mean, we all know John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. Of course Jesus loved him. But I think Luke's picking up on something that he wants you to see and follow this with me. He, two things. It shows this man's sincere. He's not coming as the scribes and Pharisees with some trick question that he's going to come back at Jesus on. He's coming with sincerity. He, just like everyone in here this morning, wants to truly know. But I think there's a second reason Luke writes, and Jesus looked on him with love. Jesus is hurting because Jesus knows this man doesn't want to hear what Jesus is about to tell him. And Jesus' heart is breaking for this man's soul. Look at the passage. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackst, go thy way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross and follow me. And it says, and he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. This man actually asked two questions. The first one, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He thought like most of the world thinks today. I'm a religious leader. I've lived a good life. I've kept the commandments. I do all this. I do all that. But obviously, in the parallel passage in Matthew, the Bible says this. He asked Jesus, this is the second question, what am I lacking? Why am I not sure that I'm saved? Why am I not sure that I'm going to heaven? <clears throat> and Jesus answers the question. I, I can picture the guy saying this. I mean, Lord, what am I like? Do I need to pray the sinner's prayer? Do I need to get baptized? Do I need to join it? Just tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it so I can get it off this, my list, and I can relax about this. Oh. This is exactly where a lot of people are today. Now, before I go any farther, and some of you get up and walk out, please, please hear me. I do believe you can pray to receive Christ, and in an instant you are eternally saved. I believe that with all of my heart. It's biblical. The Bible says in John 1:12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Over there in Luke 18 is the story of the publican and the Pharisee. You remember they're praying against the wall, and the Pharisee prays thus with himself: Lord, I thank that I am not like other people. I give tithes. Of all that I possess, I fast twice a week. I'm not an adulterer or an extortioner like this guy. And the Bible says the publican, the sinner, smote his breast and wouldn't even look up into heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God saved him. The Bible says he went home justified. So I believe you can. Paul, when telling of his conversion, apparently Adonias led him in a prayer to be saved. The thief on the cross, you'll remember what he said. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Romans 10, 9 and 10. 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Charles Spurgeon, that Calvinist reformer, used the sinner's prayer. James Whitfield, the great revivalist of the last century, used one. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Pastor John MacArthur, some of you in here probably listen to him every day. Pastor John MacArthur was headed to the NFL as a running back. And he led a quadriplegic girl in a hospital in a sinner's prayer after talking to her for about an hour. And he decided he'd never play football again. And he's been preaching the gospel ever since. So I absolutely believe in pressing for a decision when the gospel was presented. Obviously, in the book of Acts, Peter preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 are saved and baptized instantly. Later on, you read about 5,000. Many times, daily, they're being saved. I believe in that, folks. In fact, to not urge a hearer to respond when the gospel is presented is to stop short of giving the gospel. But I said all that to say this, listen, we've made a terrible mistake in our day of calling for a decision or leading in a sinner's prayer without uh, emphasizing the absolute necessity of faith and repentance for salvation. Oh, listen to me, folks. Repentance always involves renouncing a former way of life in favor of a new way of life. To follow Jesus is not simply to pray a prayer. It's the summons to lose your life. Jesus said this in Luke 14. He said this, Whoever there be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is exactly where Jesus has taken this rich young ruler. Will you lose your life? Uh, listen to what David Platt says. This doesn't mean that when people become Christians, they suddenly become perfect and never have any struggles with sin again. But this does mean that when we become followers of Christ, we make a decided break with an old way of living and we make a decisive turn to a new way of life. J.D. Greer says this, because you and I can't see into another's heart like that, we can't make that same demand of those coming to Jesus. Nowhere in scriptures do the apostles demand people actually sell their possessions to follow Jesus. But what this story does make clear is that when we come to Jesus, nothing can be off limits. We can't come with preconditions or limitations. To possess eternal life, we must be willing to let everything else go. We don't approach Jesus to negotiate eternal life. We approach him in total surrender. Back during the Crusades, Christians began to conquer Jerusalem and the pilgrims began to come back to visit the Holy Land. Around 1100 AD, there was a French knight that formed an organization known as the Knights Templar. These were some bad actors, sort of like the Army Special Ops or the Navy SEALs. And one of their main jobs was to protect the pilgrims coming back to Jerusalem and to keep the Muslims or anyone else from hurting them or, or even killing them. But what's very strange about these knights is when they were baptized by the church, they went down under the water in full uniform with their swords. But as they went down under the water, they would take their swords and they would hold, hoist them above their head so that the sword was not baptized with the rest of them. 
And the reason they did that was a way of saying to Jesus and to all the church, you have all of me there is except this. This is mine. And when I'm in church, I belong to you. But when I'm on the battlefield, I belong to me. This is one part of my life I control myself. Oh, listen, I think you know where I'm going, folks. That's how so many want to come to Christ today. I'll pray your prayer. I'll get baptized. I'll attend your church. But I still have another life, and I will not give it up. Mm. Listen, folks. Barna Research says this. Over 50% of Americans say they've prayed the sinner's prayer. Two-thirds say they've never been to church one time since. It's amazing. I remember... I attended a church in Pennsylvania, and we had a well-known evangelist who's a great preacher. Believe me, you'd much rather hear him than me this morning, but he's not here. But we went out, and I remember we went out on visitation, and we called a visitation and soul winning. So we were inviting people to church and sharing the gospel. And there was the preacher, the evangelist, four or five of us from the church, and five what they call preacher boys. And we went out, and for five nights, we knocked on doors, invited people out, shared things, passed things out. And I remember at the end of the week, we all gathered together, and we'd all share, yeah, I had 12 saved today. And with all of us, 252 people prayed to receive Christ that week. Man, we're high-fiving, yes, brother. Do you know how many attended the revival? I'm not exaggerating. Zero. Do you know how many ever visited the church that held the revival? Zero. Something's wrong, folks. Something, and I'm not against going out and evangelizing, please. I think of the example. When I was dating my wife, believe it or not, I can actually remember back that far. Just barely, but... I remember I used to love baseball. I grew up playing baseball. Well, as I got older, it transitioned into softball, sort of girl softball, slow pitch softball. What are you going to do? You're getting older. And I, but I remember playing on a team in Young, downtown Youngstown, and we played teams from all over Ohio. Some of those teams actually got paid to play. And I played on a team with some really cool guys. I was the youngest guy on the team. My, full, my first baseman was a fullback at YSU. The center fielder was a Division I quarterback. The shortstop, he was All-American and everything. These were some cool guys. And I wanted to fit in. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was coming to see me play softball. And it wasn't going real good. <clears throat> so I asked these guys, I said, where can I take a girl to have a really good time? And it was almost like in unison, these guys, oh, dude, you got to take her to the comedy club in Warren, Ohio. And I thought, nobody likes to laugh more than me, you know. So that Friday night, we went to the comedy club. I'll never forget, we walked in. Place was packed. We sat at a round table, and the first comedian got up. Folks, I didn't know a human could even think that disgusting and talk that dirty. And everybody in that place was cracking up. My wife, who was my girlfriend, she's laughing her head off. And I'm thinking to myself, I should leave. God's going to kill me. But you know, I'll be honest with you. I was backslidden. And I was like, I can't walk out, though. I think I'm a religious weirdo, you know. And I sat through two more comedians. And they were just as bad. And I remember thinking, God's going to strike me with lightning. I hope it ain't raining when we leave here. But we, me and my girlfriend at the time my wife, we walked out and as we're walking to the car I'll never forget what she said she said that is the most fun I ever had in my life we're coming back next Friday and I didn't say a word till we got in the car 
I get in, she's, man, 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 I was so much. I said, I got to be honest with you. That was the most disgusting thing. I can't believe I sat through it. I remember what she said. She said, that's all right, next week I'll come. My sister, you don't have to come, you know. <laughs> but the truth is, folks, I remember pulling over and telling her, I got to tell you something, man. I trusted Christ, and I began to share my witness with her. And we'd actually gone to a Bible study before that, and a man had given her the gospel. And I said, he changed my life. I can't explain it. That's not funny no more. I still got a sense of humor. I said, but those kind of things. And we, we actually broke up for a while. One night she called me, and I'll never forget. And she said, I've been reading stuff that Courtney gave me, the guy from the Bible study, thinking about something. She said, God got a hold of me. And I realized, what a sinner I am. And how unworthy, but what he did for me. And she said, I've given him my life. Folks, that was 38 years ago. And she never turned back. Oh, listen. Now, she's not here this morning because she's sick. I think, but she's heard me preach before. So that may have something to do with it too. Uh, Folks, I believe many pray the sinner's prayer with no idea what they're committing to, but hoping simply the prayer saves them from hell. Jesus told a parable like that. It's in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. It's the parable of the sower. You remember that parable? In that parable, there were four seeds. Three responded positively to the gospel, but only one was genuine. Keep this in mind. Three of the four would have joined the church, gotten baptized, prayed the prayer, but only one stayed at it and was sincere. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21? Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who's in heaven. In other words, not everyone that prays the sinner's prayer has been saved. It appears, obviously, three of the four seeds would have very willingly prayed, but only one bore any fruit. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, by their fruit you will know them. Jesus was not saying fruit are, or good works are a condition for true salvation. Oh, no. For by grace are you saved through faith. Oh, that's it. The blood of Christ. What he was saying was they're a result of true salvation. Is there fruit in your life? Is there? When Jesus comes to truly live inside of you, he will change you. There will be fruit. Things will change. How many of you remember the show... Pawn Stars. I cannot believe this place. Do you have televisions? <laughs> Lie and tell me you remember it. And I'll know you're kind of connecting. It's a show about this Las Vegas pawn store, all right? And then when I'm not watching Christian television, one time I accidentally went through and found it. So, yeah. Anyhow, on that show one time, there was this guy, he bought a house. And with that house, he got a barn. And he's digging through all this rubbish in his barn. And he finds a, a violin case. It's all dirty and dusty. And he takes it in the house and wipes it all down. He opens it up and there it is. A beautiful violin. And guess what it says? Stradivarius. I mean, this man's pumped. So he goes down to that store in Las Vegas. And you know, the, the show, they show them the guys behind the counter. And they're looking this violin over, and they said, Man, this is beautiful. Sure looks like the real deal. This thing is probably worth millions. But we're not experts, so we'll call in an expert. And this guy, I mean, he's already bought the house. You know, he's so excited. So they call in the expert to see if their assumption's right. And he looks it over, and he says this. 
He said the violin was made in 1920, and it's a fake. It's not worth millions. It's only worth about $500. And the next scene, you know, they go to commercial, come back, and the guy with the violin's walking out the door, and the expert says this to him as he walks out the door. Not everything that has a label on it is real. Folks, there are many today who call themselves Christians. There are many today who actually think they're Christians, but they're not real. But they're not real, folks. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 7, 22, many, that's a scary word, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied thy name and in thy name cast out devils? In thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus is saying many will be self-deceived. These people didn't lose their salvation. It's clear they never really got saved. Listen to Matthew 7, 13. Enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat, because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. Now, if you haven't heard another word I said, listen to what I'm about to read. In his book, Hard to Believe, John MacArthur writes this. In Matthew 17, 7, 13, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus admonished his followers, enter by the narrow gate. The connotation of narrow here is constricted. It's a very, very tight squeeze. We can't carry anything through it. We come through with nothing. The same teaching appears in Luke 13, 23, and 24. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's shocking, folks. Jesus said, strive to get here. He said, many are trying to get in and they're not Able. I think that's the most shocking verse in all the Bible. He's talking to us. What does Jesus mean? Strive. The Greek word is agonizio. It means to fight, to battle, to struggle till you get through. What did it appears at first? Jesus is saying we have to work to be saved. Oh no 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 no! It takes us back to the rich young ruler. Jesus is saying. You have to fight with everything in you to let go of yourself. That's what Jesus is saying, folks. Satan's coming with all he has to convince you. Don't let go. You have too much to lose. Just say a prayer and move on with life. That's not what Jesus is saying. In John 8, 31, the Bible says, Jesus said to the Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then... You are my disciples. Jesus was not again giving conditions for salvation, but a result of true salvation. One of the results of saving faith, faith is that it will endure the test of time and trials. You say, how do you know that? How many know Hebrews 12 too? Looking unto Jesus, the author, and help me out, finisher of our faith. What about Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude 24, now unto him to is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his glory with exceeding joy. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? 
The Bible tells a story of a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep and goes after one that's out in the wilderness in terrible shape. You remember that story? That, of course, represents Jesus. You know that. And he goes out and he finds that sheep and he goes, come on, little sheep. Well, watch those rocks. Watch, there's a lion up ahead. Oh, little sheep. Please. No, 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 no. If you're here and you're worried you've lost your salvation, or you even think you can't, go back to that parable. Because the Bible makes it very clear. When Jesus finds that sheep, do you know what he does with it? He don't encourage it. He puts it on his shoulders and he takes it all the way home. When you give your life to Christ, you are a new person until the day you die. He'll take you all the way home. A faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. 1 John 2.19 says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, how do you know, John? For if they'd been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out. Why did they go out? That it might be made manifest that they were never of us. Listen carefully. This is key. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on with life. Salvation is a posture of faith and repentance that you begin in a moment and you maintain it for the rest of your life because Christ has come and made you a new person. Salvation does indeed happen in a moment's time and it can and most often is preceded by a prayer. But genuine salvation will result in a difference in the way you live, talk, and act for the rest of your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Now all things have become new. Look how Jesus responds with this man. And I'm about done. Hang with me just a little bit. He gives him some commands, you know, to defraud and honor thy father and all that. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing you lack, go thy way. Sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. What an odd answer. Am I the only one who thinks that? It almost appears Jesus is making works as part of his conversion. Oh, no, 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 no. Why did Jesus do that? Because the rich young ruler thought like a lot of us, I'm living a pretty good life. I'm not that bad. I don't need all that. And Jesus starts to point out the commands. And that man can see in his own heart. And he sees I'm covetous, adulterous, and I don't love my neighbor as myself. You can't get saved unless you see yourself the same way. And I see myself. Jesus brought this man to a place of conviction so that he could see what his heart was really like. This young man wanted, here's what he wanted. Jesus, tell me a few more steps, something to do. How much money do I got to give? What church, baptism, prayer, whatever. And I'll let you move on with life and I'll move on with life. That's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus didn't want him to mouth the prayer. Jesus wanted him to make a life-changing decision. To lose his life. And that's what he's calling every one of us to do. I want to read something from David Platt's book, Follow Me. Don't go to sleep. This will so bring it down today. I'm almost done. Hang with me. I am as part of a people who pride themselves on being 100% Muslim. To belong to Ian's tribe is to be Muslim. Ian's personal identity, ancestral honor, relational standing, and social status are all inseparably intertwined with Islam. 
Simply put, if Ian ever leaves her face, she will immediately lose her life. If Ian's family ever finds out that she's no longer a Muslim, they will slit her throat without question or hesitation. Now imagine having a conversation with Ian about Jesus. You start by telling her how God loves her so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for her sins. And he wants to be her savior. As you speak, you can sense her heart softening toward what you're saying. At the same time, though, you can feel her spirit trembling as she contemplates what it would cost for her to follow Christ. With fear in her eyes, with fear in her eyes and faith in her heart, she asks, How do I become a Christian? You have two options in your response to Ian. You could tell her how easy it is to become a Christian. If Ian will simply assent to certain truths, repeat a particular prayer, she can be saved. That's all it takes. Your second option is to tell Ian the truth. You could tell Ian that in the gospel, God is calling her to die. Literally, to die to her life, to die to her family, to die to her friends, to die to her future, and in dying to live, to live in Jesus, to live as part of a global family that includes every tribe, to live with friends who spend every age, span every age, to live in a future where joy will last forever. Ian is not imaginary. She's a real woman I met who made a real choice to become a Christian, to die to herself, and to live in Christ, no matter what it cost. Let me finish. Is the music. People come back up. So the young man in our story went away without inheriting eternal life. He wanted it. He really, really wanted eternal life. Do you see that? Do you see how humble he was, how earnest he wanted it? But it wasn't worth it to him if it cost him the life he had now. You see where Jesus is going? You may be here and thinking about following Christ. You need to know that if you resolve to follow Christ and put your trust in him and his resurrection and his death as payment for your sins, it will cost you. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I love that song. When I survey the wondrous cross. You guys know that song? Well, quite a few years ago, Chris Tomlin added some words to that song that I really love. They go like this. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. My challenge this morning is this, folks. Will you come to Christ and hand him your life? It's going to cost you. I'm I'm going to tell you up front, it's going to cost you. But it will be so worth it. You will begin to truly live for now and for all of eternity.